thank you, Eric, for that really special time of worship. So for the, so those of you who don't know me, I'm Brian Coffey. I'm formerly youth pastor at Chapel Street, formerly senior pastor at Chapel Street, now pastor of leadership and development and campus pastor at South Street, uh, where I was earlier this morning. And by the way, um, the only parking spot I could find was one last visitor parking space. <laughs> and technically, I'm a visitor here. <clears throat> but let me just say that I'm so proud to be part of this church still, so proud of Andrew and Janae for their courage and their humility, so proud of our leadership for Jeff and Kim and the others who are here today and the process they are walking through, and so proud of you as this, this church body here, this family that you're walking with uh, your pastor through this time. So thank you so much. It's a joy to be with you here today. If you know us at all, my wife, Lorene, and I are now empty nesters. Uh, our four sons are all between the ages of 24 and 31, which is a little hard for us to believe still. Our oldest, Jordan, lives with his wife in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our second-born, Jesse, lives in Charleston, South Carolina, and teaches special ed math in high school. Uh, our third son, Micah, and his wife, Gianna, live in Lockport, about 40 minutes away, with our granddaughter, uh, Emery. They're here today, I think. Mike and Gianna, you guys here today? All right, right there. <laughs> So we see them often. And our youngest, Canaan, is playing professional basketball in Malta, uh, an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, we have gradually and somewhat reluctantly adjusted to our lives as empty nesters. And I say reluctantly because we really loved our life uh, together as family. We love the energy of it, the fun of it, the utter chaos of it sometimes. There are, however, certain benefits to being empty nesters, one of them being our house generally stays cleaner than it used to. Uh, back when our boys were very young, my wife was a stay-at-home mom for most of those years before uh, leading Chapel Street Women for some 20 years. And she was really good at caring for our boys and keeping our house and all those things, and she hardly ever got a day off from being mom. But on the few occasions where she would be away for a day, maybe a weekend, uh, I was in charge. And something interesting happened when, when that would happen, uh, kind of a phenomenon, really, is that within a few hours of her being away, our house would, would kind of degenerate. <laughs> Some of you guys may know what I'm talking about. I mean, toys would spill out of the toy box, cereal bowls would pile up in the sink, Portillo's boxes would be strewn around the family room, dirty clothes would just pile up on the bedroom floors, shoes would multiply somehow. Uh, without, when hours of her departure, our home descended into a state of primordial chaos, kind of like Genesis, right? And the coffee house was formless and void. And darkness is over the surface of the deep. But I don't blame it on my domestic laziness. You guys, pay attention. You may need this. It's really the second law of thermodynamics. It's the law of entropy. Everything in the universe goes from order to disorder without energy invested into the system. So, guys, if this ever happens to you, just say it's the law of nature. What can I do? <laughs> but during those years, I discovered a little formula. I discovered it would take me about an hour per every day she was away to clean up so the house looked nice when she got back. So if she was coming back at 6 o'clock Sunday evening, I would start cleaning up at 4 o'clock in the evening if she'd been gone for two days. She was gone for more than three days, and then who knows what was going to happen then. That's how it worked. The problem came when I didn't know exactly when she was coming back because that was, that was harder because then I had to live in a state of perpetual readiness. 
a whole different thing. And that's actually kind of what Jesus is going to teach us today. We're continuing in our series from the Gospel According to Mark, Following the King. And we are now in the last week of Jesus' earthly life and ministry. Uh, we've seen escalating conflict with religious leaders. He entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey to fulfill the prophecy that everybody knew about, that their king would come riding on a donkey. He's thrown the money changers out of the temple, which made a whole lot of people really angry. We saw a group of Pharisees and Herodians confront him, trying to trap him into saying something for which they could accuse him and destroy him. Last week, we saw a scribe came and asked a question, what's the greatest, what's the most important commandment? Now, at this point... Chapter 13 begins, and we're going to focus on the last part of chapter 13, but in order to even understand, we have to go back to the beginning of chapter 13 and give some context. So at the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus is still in the temple area, and Mark tells us in verse 1 that as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, it's almost impossible for us, I think, to even fathom the impact Jesus' words would have had on those disciples at that time. The temple of Jerusalem was the very symbol of the presence and blessing of God to his people. This is what it would have looked like today. Do we have the images? There you go. It's not there today, but this is what it would have looked like. It had uh, huge walls of, of, of white limestone uh, inlaid with gold. It took 46 years to build. The walls stood 150 feet above the Kidron Valley. Absolutely unimaginable that such a magnificent structure could ever be torn down. It'd be like someone telling us in 1974, shortly after the construction of the World Trade Center, that someday those magnificent buildings would lie in ruins. We wouldn't be able to imagine it. But history tells us it did happen. In 70 AD, just 40 years after Jesus said these things, the Roman army under Emperor Titus marched to Jerusalem, sacked it, and utterly destroyed the temple. And it's never been rebuilt since. Now, with this statement still hanging in the air, Mark tells us Jesus leaves the temple area, which would be the last time he does so, and leads the disciples across the Kidron Valley up onto a hill called the Mount of Olives, from which he had a, a sort of panoramic view of the temple and the surrounding area. Mark says this in verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, naturally, they want to know when. Jesus has said this amazing thing. It's all going to come down. They want to know when. When's it all going to happen? Jesus doesn't give them a date. He gives them some signs to look for. Verse 5, And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. So he says, Watch out for false teachers and false prophets. Then he warns of coming disasters, verse 7, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed, this must take place, but the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. History tells us that in 62 AD, a great earthquake struck the city of Pompeii right in the heart of the Roman Empire. But notice when Jesus says, when you hear of wars and of earthquakes, this is not the end, but the beginning of birth pains. The same phrase the Apostle Paul uses in Romans to describe the brokenness 
of the sin of the world. Romans 8, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to, to us. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So Jesus is saying that through the pain and brokenness of the world, God is doing something new. God is going to bring something new, new life from that which is broken. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. And then Jesus warns of coming persecution. Verse 9, be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And if we, and if we read the book of Acts, we studied the book of Acts a couple of years ago, we see all this happens in the next 20 years or so to the followers of Jesus. All these things that Jesus has said are in the book of Acts. The early Christians were seen as traitors to Rome and to their own people, so they were hated and persecuted on both sides. Finally, verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, what's he talking about here? Now, this phrase, the abomination of desolation, is particularly difficult to interpret it basically means uh, the, a revolting or disgusting evil before God. We first see this phrase way back in the book of Daniel in a prophecy about a pagan emperor, ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes IV of Syria, who sacked Jerusalem in 175 B.C. and desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the, idol, uh, on the altar of God. And now we see, in 70 AD, historians tell us that when Titus sacked Jerusalem, he slaughtered thousands of Jewish people and stacked up the bodies in the temple area, thus desecrating the temple. All of that by way of introducing the context of the text we look at today. Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. Let me read these for you. And Jesus said, But in those days... After that tribulation, now what's that? That's the, what he's just talked about, the deception and the persecution and the destruction. The sun, will not be dark, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Now Jesus is using a particular kind of language here we'll talk about it in a minute. And, when they will see, and then they will see the Son of Man. Son of Man is a messianic title, which most of you know. It's Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves his home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he suddenly come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Now this whole chapter, Mark 13, is called by 
theologians, the Olivet Discourse, and it's among the most difficult passages in the entire New Testament to interpret. Uh, scholars have debated and argued over this, these teachings for centuries, so we won't figure it all out today. It's difficult for several reasons. First of all, for the subject matter. Jesus is speaking prophetically here. And prophetic material is difficult because it's talking about future events that have not yet happened. It's also difficult because we are time-bound people. Any talk of the future just fascinates us. And we want to speculate about things that Jesus actually tells us not to speculate about. And thirdly, it's difficult because Jesus is using a particular kind of language here called apocalyptic language, which is highly symbolic and very strange to our ears. And over the centuries, there have been three primary views by which this passage is interpreted. The first is that Jesus is speaking only about uh, immediate events. He's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And that's his context, and that's what he's talking about. The second view is that Jesus is only, really only talking here about end times. When he's going to return for the second coming, he's talking about that. But the third view is that he's talking about both. And this is the view I'm going to lean on today that he's using a near-term prophetic event, the destruction of the temple, to explain to us a long-term future event, his second coming and his ultimate kingdom. So uh, let's dig in. The first thing we see here is that Jesus is teaching us that the end is near. The end is near. Well, the Olympics ended about a week or so ago, and I had watched for a while. It was fun seeing sports I know nothing about. And then I kind of lost the interest and didn't even watch the closing ceremonies. But as I studied uh, this week and prepared for this uh, passage, it got me thinking about uh, sports I know a little bit more about and I'm more familiar with, like baseball and football. And they're different. We all know that. But one of the main ways they're different is that football is governed by a clock. You know, 15 minutes a quarter for pro football, and as the clock moves, the game moves, and ultimately the game ends when the clock hits zero. Baseball, however, isn't run by a clock. Baseball is governed by innings. So you don't play an inning for 15 minutes and move on. You play an inning until there's three outs. So theoretically, if you don't make outs, you can play forever. So you, some of you may think baseball goes forever. <laughs> I once went to a game, a youth game, one of my boys was playing, and their team batted in a half an inning, without making three outs for 45 minutes. It's like a definition of eternity. <laughs> some, of, some people think that history is more like baseball, that we just keep getting more and more innings, that it just keeps going on and on and on and on. Jesus says it's a lot more, time in history is a lot more like football, that there's a clock. There's a beginning and there's an end, and that clock is ticking, he says. Verse 24, but in those days after that tribulation, now don't get hung up on that word, we'll come back to it in a minute, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Jesus has been talking about the coming destruction of the temple, which happened in 70 AD, the end of life as they knew it as Jewish people. Now he kind of shifts gears. He looks through that event to a much more distant event, the end of all things. Now, we need to see here that Jesus is using a different kind of language, apocalyptic language, highly symbolic language. And we see the exact same language in the book of Revelation. For example, chapter 6, 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. All that is symbolic language. It's not meant to be taken literally as we understand the word literally, but it's true. Here's what I mean. If you saw a headline in the sports section one day that would say that said Bears Mall Packers, first of all, you'd be very happy, but you wouldn't be thinking literally a wild beast is tearing flesh. If you saw a headline in the weather at night that says Chicago buried in snow, you wouldn't think that the Willis Tower is covered with snow. You would think just this dramatic language to mean something dramatic is happening. Well, same way with apocalyptic language. It's symbolic. And taken all together, these images Jesus is using is just saying something is going to happen, an earth-shattering event, a life-changing event is going to take place. So I was thinking about the events in the world this week. It dawned on me the people of Ukraine today would understand language like this. Jesus is saying that this will happen after a time of tribulation, which simply means extreme suffering, or trial. And in the near-term future, he's talking about the fall of the temple in 70 AD. But he's also pointing to this distant future that will take place after a time of persecution and suffering. Now, over the centuries, uh, theologians have wrestled with the meaning of the term tribulation. Many of you have probably studied this and know something about it. Let me just quickly try to summarize. Some think this refers to a specific period of seven years of intense suffering that will come either just before or just after Jesus' second coming. Many of you have seen that and talked and read books about that. Some think tribulation refers in a more general sense to the suffering of all followers of Jesus throughout all of Christian history. And I tend to lean on that understanding a little bit more, that tribulation refers to suffering specifically of God's people that has happened has always happened and will happen in the future. As Paul says, the whole creation groans in childbirth right up to the present time. Years ago, I heard a missionary tell a story about serving in China for many years until being expelled at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution in 1966. Some of you are know more about this than I do. That was when Chairman Mao became leader of China and instituted a purge called the Cultural Revolution in which uh, estimated 25 million people, many of whom were Christian, were either imprisoned or murdered during that time. After those 10 years, it ended in about nine, the mid-70s. This missionary was able to go back to China when it opened up again, and he went to the same uh, town where he had had a church family. He found an old woman who was still alive who had been in his church. And in their conversation, she said to him, Jesus is coming soon, Pastor, isn't he? And he said to her, I believe so, but why do you say so? She says, because we all, we've already been through the tribulation, she said. Jesus says, the end is coming. The second thing we see here is that he says he's coming again. Jesus is coming again. Those of you who are uh, historians of World War II know that in the darkest days, early in the 1940s, in the Pacific theater of the war, things weren't going well. And at one point, President Eisenhower ordered General Douglas MacArthur, who was in charge, to flee from the Philippine Islands, the island of Corregidor specifically, because he was afraid the Japanese would capture or kill him, and he was important to the whole war effort. And MacArthur didn't like the order, but he obeyed it and left. But before he left, he said, he made a promise, 
I shall return, among the most famous words of World War II. And two and a half years later, he did return, led a series of victories that turned the tide of the war in the Pacific. Jesus makes a similar promise here, verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather the, his elect from the four winds and the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus is saying the day is coming after these things have happened, after deception and persecution and suffering, he will return as king to gather his elect to himself. In other words, to gather those who have put their faith in him. The Apostle John gives us a sneak peek into the new heaven and new earth and to what this would be like in Revelation chapter 7. He writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the promise of Jesus' return comes to us dozens and dozens of times in the New Testament, mentioned, in fact, in 23 of the 27 New Testament books. And throughout, it said his coming, his second coming, will mark the fulfillment of his eternal kingdom. And over and over again, we're told he'll come as king to rule. He'll come as judge to destroy all sin and evil and even death itself. That his coming will mark the restoration of all things, the entire cosmos, new heaven and new earth. So Jesus is coming, and now he says he's coming soon. Verse 28, and from the fig tree learned its lesson. Now, this was the Mount of Olives. It was springtime in Israel. The Mount of Olives is covered with fig trees and olive trees. They're beginning to bloom. So Jesus is using an object lesson. As soon as this branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, some of you, if you're paying attention, are saying, wait, hold on a second, time out. This generation will not pass away. Who is he talking about? This is 2,000 years ago. Many scholars believe Jesus here is talking about two horizons simultaneously. This generation, meaning those alive at the time of the destruction of the temple, and this generation in terms of a capital G, all those living post-resurrection, pre-second coming, who will witness the fulfillment of this prophecy. So in other words, he's saying that wherever and whenever his followers are alive in history, he is coming soon. And therefore, he says, stay awake. Stay awake. I was with my brother this past week for a couple of days, and we always tell stories of growing up. And when he was young, maybe, I don't know, eight or nine or ten years old, uh, he had trouble getting up in the morning for school. He would, uh, my mom would wake him up, and he'd roll back over and go to sleep. My dad would wake him up, roll back over and go to sleep. So my dad devised these creative somewhat cruel methods of waking him up. One time, I remember, he soaked a washcloth in cold ice water and threw it onto his bare back. Splat. Another time, he grabbed my brother's sousaphone. He played sousaphone in the school band. You know, the, it's like a tube only with a big giant bell. Yeah. My dad picked it up, put the bell right over his sleeping head, and blew it. My brother calls that child abuse, and 
says he's been traumatized for years. My dad just thought it was funny. Verse 32, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is like God's sousaphone put over the head of the church at people. He says, stay awake. Wake up. Pay attention. Two main things here about his coming, Jesus is saying. First, no one knows when. No one knows when. Throughout history, there have been all kinds of predictions. We, we see them probably almost every year. But let me give you a few examples. In the second century, just the second century A.D., a self-proclaimed prophet named Montanus claimed that the Holy Spirit told him that Christ's return was so near that believers should just stop doing everything else. Now he was wrong. In 999 A.D., at the end of the first millennium, Pope Sylvester II declared the last mass of human history on New Year's Eve because it was all going to end. He was wrong. In the mid-1840s, the Baptist preacher from Vermont named William Miller predicted Jesus would return specifically on October 22, 1844. Some farmers actually sold their property and others left their fields unharvested. He was also wrong. Since 1914, the Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted seven specific dates for the apocalypse. All were wrong. Most recently, a man named Harold Camping, and you may remember him, put billboards up all over the southern United States. Dozens and dozens of them saying, Judgment Day is coming, May 21st, 2011. Now, all these have one thing in common. They were wrong. Why were they wrong? Jesus says, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So what's the correct answer to the question, when is Jesus coming back? Say it with me. We don't know. Very good. Now, some of you are paying attention. You're thinking, well, how, wait a second. How can Jesus not know when he's coming back? That's what he says. How can Jesus not know? Well, let me just say it this way. The same way he could bleed and the same way he could die. Because this is the miracle and wonder of the incarnation, that Jesus becoming flesh voluntarily lays down part of his divinity. Jesus is simply saying, don't waste your time and energy trying to figure out what God does not want you to figure out, what he does not want you to know. Instead, he says, stay awake. Stay awake. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says, stay awake? The first thing it dawns on me is that we tend to get sleepy. We tend to get a little bit sleepy. That is, we get caught up in the concerns of daily life and, our, and, and we tend to forget the primacy and the urgency of the gospel itself. And I think this is particularly true of us, we who live most of our lives in the relative comfort and wealth of North America. I think one of the occupational hazards of the suburban church in America is a tendency to get a little sleepy, a little complacent. By contrast, if you're a Christian today, you're a follower of Jesus today in the Middle East, you are not sleepy. If you're a follower of Jesus today in the Ukraine, and we have people 
that we're connected to in Ukraine as a church. You're not sleepy. You're wide awake. I think Jesus is saying, wake up. Pay attention. The world is broken by sin, racked by birth pains. Terrible things will happen. Terrible things have always happened. Terrible things are going to happen. And when they do, remember that I have come into the world to give my life so that you have the hope of new life. Remember that I am coming again as king to gather my people. Until then, stay awake. Love God. Love your neighbor. Preach the gospel. Trust my promise. I am coming soon, he says. Some of you know that uh, my dad pastored churches for nearly 60 years, 10 different uh, pastorates over those 60 years. My mom by his side the whole time. And some of you know my mom uh, died uh, November of 2020. My dad's now in a memory care facility in Ohio. But for many years, maybe, maybe 25 years or 30 years before my mom died, uh, every morning they would do the same thing at breakfast time. They had a, almost a, like a little toast. They'd pour their orange juice in these little tiny glasses, and one would lift, they'd lift their glasses, and one or the other would say, sometimes at the both time, both at the same time, they would say, today might be the day. Today might be the day. And what they meant was, today might be the day that Jesus keeps his promise that he comes back for us. Or they meant, today might be the day that one or both of us go to meet him. And either way, their destiny was secure, their hope was certain, and their marching plans were clear. Stay awake. Stay awake. Would you bow with me as I close? Lord, We thank you for your word today. We thank you for your promise. And we look out at the world and see a lot of the same things that your followers saw 2,000 years ago. We see pain and destruction and tribulation. And while we're protected from some of that where we live, we can sometimes see these same things in our lives too. We struggle with pain and destruction and tribulation. Remind us that none of this takes you by surprise. Remind us that these are just the pains of childbirth, that you're you're working even now to bring something new out of the brokenness of the world. Teach us to trust your promise. Teach us to stay awake. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.